Suttas on Wrong Views is Diganikaya number one. The suttas, well, actually, before I start that, I should go through it. Several people requested what suttas was I talking about. So the first sutta I mentioned was uh, from the Samyutta Nikaya um, 44-10, and that's actually entitled to Ananda. Then I read from Digha Nikaya number one the bit about the wrangling disputations, your, your theories are, de- are defeated, go and so forth, you know, the arguments. Then I read from... Uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 73, which was the Vachagota on the, the fire and uh, what happens to the enlightened being after death. And so now I want to take a look at Digha Nikaya number one, which, as I said, is the granddaddy of all wrong view suttas. The suttas are arranged in various collections. That's what the word Nikaya means, collection. There's the long collection, the middle-length collection, and then three collections of shorter suttas, the numerical, the thematic, and the lesser collection or miscellaneous collection. And they're in the order, Digha Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya, Samyutta, Angutra, and lesser. So I may have the Samyutta in and Gutra swapped. I can't remember. Um, so the Digha Nikaya is the first of the suttas, and the first sutta in the Digha Nikaya, or in other words, the first sutta in the entire collection of suttas, is the Brahma Jala Sutta, the discourse on the net of views. And these are the 62 possible views of the self, and the fact they're all wrong. This particular sutta has been translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi in a little book from uh, uh, BPS, Buddhist Publication Society, and it includes all the commentaries, uh, the ancient commentaries. It's an interesting book if you ever get a chance to look at it. Um, there's a good translation of it in the Digha Nikaya. But instead of sitting here and reading you 62 possible wrong views... I'm going to point you to a chart, a very, very good chart. This was done by Andy Olinsky, who's the director at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. And this is the Insight Journal magazine from fall of 2003. Okay, if you're not a subscriber, subscribe. If you come to Sati Center events, this is the one you want to read. Okay, and you could probably write them and send them a nice donation and ask them for a copy of fall of 2003. And the centerfold is the net of Brahma, the 62 flavors of wrong views. I'm not going to go into detail, but I'm sort of going to give you a, a sense of, of what they are. And of course, they have to use small print to get it all on two pages. Okay. So, the first four have to do with people remembering their past lives. Uh, Or the first three have to do with people remembering their past lives. Up to 100,000, 10 periods of world contraction and expansion, up to 40 periods of world contraction and expansion. So, lots of past lives, whole bunches more past lives, whole bunches still even more past lives. 
Okay. Or by using logic, one hammers this out for themselves and says, the self and the world are eternal, barren like a mountain peak, set firmly as a post. These beings rush around, circulate, pass away and re-arise, but this remains eternally. How do I know? I have experienced it for myself. In other words, they remembered past lives. If you can remember this many past lives, then obviously, of course, it's always like this, right? Everything you know is right. Now, wait, somebody said everything you know is wrong. <laughs> Better view or opinion. Okay, so that's the first four. That's eternalism. Then we have partial eternalism. Uh, and this is based on basically the views of the cosmology at the time of the Buddha, the Brahman cosmology. Uh, the Brahman who arose first is eternal, but other beings aren't. Okay, So the, the great Brahman is, is eternal, is what is said. Uh, and the Buddha says, no, he's just the being that rose first. Several Brahm, uh, be, uh, devas are eternal, but the rest aren't. All the Adevas are eternal, the rest aren't. Or somebody's a logician, a reasoner, hammering out by reason, following his own line of thought, he argues, whatever is body is impermanent, but whatever is mind is eternal. Okay, so these people are partial eternalists, saying that you know the body goes away, but if you're in one of the really high realms, that gets to stick around. All right, so you've got to get to one of the high realms. And of course, the best way to get to one of the high realms is make donations to me, something like that. All right. All right. The next one is extensionism. Uh, someone has got concentrated enough that they can enter the upper jhanas, the uh, the sphere of infinite space, or the sphere of uh, infinite consciousness. No, sorry. The sphere of, sorry, okay. Number nine, nothing infinite. They just, this, one thinks that the world is infinite and bounded by a circle. Or they get into the sphere of infinite space and think that the world is infinite and unbounded. Or they get into infinite space and they see it as infinite across but bounded up and down. Or they hammer it out with logic and reason and think that the world is neither finite nor infinite. So, we've got quite a few views. Endless equivocation. Uh, they never give an answer because it might be a lie. Uh, they might feel desire, lust, or hatred towards attachment, being attached to their views, so they never have any views. And there might be questions and not be able to reply. In other words, they wouldn't be able to defend their views very well. Or they're dull and stupid. So, that's the first 16. Then there are two more of fortuitous origination. That is, uh, beings just arise spontaneously. And there are two flavors of that. So these are speculators about the past, the 18 ways that people speculate about the past. Then there are speculators about the, the future, and they declare the self after death is healthy and conscious and 
Material, immaterial, both material and immaterial, neither material nor immaterial, finite, infinite, both infinite and finite, neither finite nor infinite, of uniform perception, of varied perception, of limited perception, of unlimited perception, wholly happy, wholly miserable, both happy and miserable, neither happy nor miserable. Okay, what kind of life do you want afterwards? Well, you can find somebody that will get you there, right? Uh, then there are those who say that the self is healthy and unconscious, material, immaterial, both material and immaterial, and the self after death, oh, finite, infinite, both finite and infinite, neither. And after death, the self is healthy and neither conscious nor unconscious, but material, immaterial, etc. Okay. So there are those who are eternalist and that there's somehow something that goes on either consciously or unconsciously is either infinite, finite, whatever, all sorts of flavors. Then there's annihilationism. Here, someone says the self is material, uh, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, etc. At the break of the body is annihilated, perishes, does not exist after death. In other words, what you see is what you get. This is it, you know. You're here physically, and when you die, that's it. You're gone. It's a fairly common view. Another says to him, sir, there is such a self as you say. I don't deny it. But that, is, that self is not wholly annihilated. For there is another self that is divine material belonging to the sense sphere fed on real food or divine material mind made complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. That which has realized the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of no thingness, the sphere of neither perception or non-perception. In other words, there is a self, and because you've gotten into one of the higher jhanas, then that's where you're going to wind up, in, in the sphere of infinite space. All right? So they've mistaken experiences that happen during meditation for... Uh, some sort of proof of eternal life. And then there are those who say that there is Nibbana here and now. Oh, and by the way, all these who experience something else, they say, that's the real self, but he gets annihilated too. All right, so it's not, it's not just that you're the material form. You have this higher self, but when you die, it gets annihilated. So these are all the annihilationists, of which there are seven. Then there are the ones who say there's Nibbana here and now. And basically they say there's the hedonist, right? Okay, you've got these five sense pleasures, go out and indulge them, right? That's Nibbana here and now, you know, enjoy everything. Uh, there are others that say, sir, there is the self such as you say, I don't deny it, but that's not where the self realizes the highest Nibbana here and now. It's when they enter the first jhana. And another says, no, no, it's the second. No, 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 it's the third. No, it's the fourth. So each of the first four jhanas is mistaken for Nibbana. And this also happens. People go on retreat, have this suddenly amazing experience, and think they must be enlightened. Well, no, all that's happened is their mind has fallen into a pretty amazing state. But it doesn't mean they're enlightened, and it's not Nibbana. Because when you come out, the bills are still be waiting to be paid and the same politicians are doing whatever they were doing. Okay, So these are the 62 flavors of wrong view. Now, as you can see, the six that we talked about from Diganikaya number two all would fit into these various categories. Some of them perhaps would, would 
overlap a couple of categories. But basically what the Buddha is doing in the first sutta in the Digha Nikaya is pointing out that there are lots of ways of speculating about you know, what the self is, how, how it exists, where is heaven, is there heaven, what you should be doing here and now, etc. And he goes on in the sutta to say they're all wrong. All right? That what you need to do is sit down and meditate and actually see what's happening. That these views and opinions are a complete distraction and are not where you should be wasting your time. Uh, any questions on Diganikaya number one? That's a very quick summary. Okay. So, <clears throat> going back to the Majjhima Nikaya. The Majjhima Nikaya number 72 was the one where Vachagota does the bit with the fire. You know, where does the fire go when it goes out? Um, Number that was in number seventy-two. In number seventy-one, there's another sutta to Vachagota, and at the end of that one, he's Vachagota is pleased. At the end of number seventy-two, he's so pleased he becomes a lay follower. At the end of number seventy-three, well, actually before the end of number seventy-three, uh, he has to become a monk, and then he practices, and at the end of seventy-three. He becomes totally enlightened. So he's a pretty interesting character. He comes with all these questions and, you know, he begins more and more confidence until finally the Buddha gives him a teaching that is like, all right, I'm ready to do the real thing. I'm not just going to be a lay follower. I'm going to be a monk. And then he practices and becomes totally enlightened. So I would definitely recommend checking out, if you have a copy of the Majjhima Nikaya, number 71, 72, 73. They make, they make interesting reading. The Access to Insight website, which many of you may be familiar with, only has number 72, which is the one I discussed in detail, but it does have number 72. Number 74, which follows this, is one to Digga Naka. Digga is long, and Naka, I have heard, is nails. So this is a guy with long fingernails. Uh, he was a, an ascetic, and, you know, he, he goes on alms round and he's holding the bowl and his long nails are out there for everybody to see and they know he's a real holy man because, you know, he hasn't done any work at all because you can't do any work if you let your nails grow out like that. So, he comes to see the Buddha and exchanged courtesies with him and sat down to one side and said, Master Gotama, my doctrine and view is this, nothing is acceptable to me. Okay, so we've talked about all these wrong views, right? So the Buddha isn't saying, however, don't have any views at all, because here's a guy who's got no views, and he comes and says, I don't have any views. Nothing is acceptable. And the Buddha says, this view of yours, Agivesana, that was his real name. Long fingernails was his, you know, his uh, nickname. This view of yours, Agavesana, nothing is acceptable to me. Is not at least that view acceptable to you? In other words, you hold the view of not holding any views. Isn't this true? And he says, 
<clears throat> if this view of mine were acceptable to me, Mastikotama, it too would be the same. It too would be the same. He's like, okay, you got me, but, but it doesn't matter. I still don't have any views. All right. Well, Agavesana, there are plenty in this world who say it too would be the same. It too would be the same. Yet they do not abandon that view and they take up still some other view. There are few in this world who would say it too would be the same. It too would be the same and who abandon that view and do not take up another view. Ever had a view or opinion and suddenly the evidence starts coming in that your view or opinion might not exactly be right? What's that feel like? You know, might, you, might, you might just be wrong. There's an interesting sutta, Dignikaya number 23. Uh, it's not given by the Buddha, it's given by one of the Kasapas. There are a bunch of guys named Kasapa that were monks. And this is Kasapa the Younger, who was um, known as a, as a great orator, one of the greatest preachers of the Dharma. And in that sutta, he confronts someone who is of the view and opinion, Prince Payasi, that uh, there's no benefit in doing good works and there's no life after death. And he says, well, Prince Payasi, and he gives him all these examples. And after each example, Prince Payasi says, well, that may be as you say, but I still believe otherwise. And finally, you know, the gossip uh, says, why do you believe otherwise? And he, he gives up on giving him examples of why. And he says, well, I've held this view for a long time. And if I were to abandon this view, people would think poorly of me. We can be the same way, you know. We, we're totally attached to our view. Um, one, the, uh, there are two examples that uh, the monk Kasapa gives. He says, you've held this view for a long time. You're unwilling to give it up. It's like a pig farmer who goes wandering and he finds a bunch of dung. And he wraps it up in a cloth and puts it on his head to bring back to his pigs. This will be great food for them. And as he's walking back to his village, it starts to rain. And pretty soon, this pig dung is oozing down his face and everything else. And people pass and say, why are you carrying this wet dung on your head? Oh, this is good stuff. I can't give it up, right? Give up your view, Prince Biasi. And uh, Prince Biasi won't give up his view. So then he says, it's like these two guys that, that uh, go to an abandoned village. And they find some hemp there. And they think, oh, this is good stuff. We could bring it back, some hemp fiber, and we could make some hemp cloth. And you know, that would be wonderful. So they bundle up the hemp and they start looking through the village some more. And one of them finds some hemp cloth and says, oh, look, hemp cloth. Throw away your bundle of hemp fiber. We'll take the cloth. And the other says, no, I've got this bundled up really nicely. I'll keep the fiber. And so then they go to the next one and they find silk. Throw away your, your hemp fiber and take this silk. No, I've got it bundled up really nicely. They go to the next one they find silver. Throw away the silver. I mean, we're going to sell the cloth to get money. Here's money. No, I've got this bundled up really nicely. This is the way we are. I think you finally gold and they go back to their village and one of them has some hemp cloth and the other has all this gold. You know, we are attached to the hemp cloth. I mean, to the hemp fiber our views and opinions because we've had them for so long. 
Anyhow, it's a fun sutta to read. Uh, Dig in Italia number 23 to Prince Piasi. Um, so it's rare to find someone who, when confronted with evidence contrary to their opinion, will go, oh, I guess I was wrong. Of course, even when you go, oh, I guess I was wrong, what do you do? You immediately grab hold of another opinion, right? Which is just as useless as the one you had before, at least in terms of being a thicket of views that you have to defend. There are some recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine and view is this. Everything is acceptable to me. There are some recluses and Brahmins whose view is this. Nothing is acceptable to, be, to me. And there are some recluses and Brahmins whose doctrine is this. Something is acceptable to me and some things are not acceptable to me. Among these, the view of those recluses and Brahmins who hold the doctrine view, everything is acceptable to me, is close to lust, close to bondage, close to delighting, close to holding, close to clinging. The view of those recluses and Brahmins who hold the doctrine, nothing acceptable to me, is close to non-lust, non-bondage, non-delighting, non-holding, non-clinging. When this was said, the wanderer Diganaka remarked, Master Gotama commends my point of view. Master Gotama recommends my point of view. Agavesana, as to those recluses and Brahmins who hold the doctrine of view, something is acceptable to me, something is not acceptable to me. This view of theirs as to what is acceptable is close to lust, close to bondage, close to delighting, close to holding, close to clinging, while the view of theirs as to what is not acceptable is close to non-lust, non-bondage, close to non-delighting, non-holding, non-clinging. In other words, the holding of the view and the not holding of another view is holding of a view that is close to lust, etc. Now, the Buddha then says that if you hold the view that everything is acceptable, you'll get into trouble having arguments with people who say nothing is acceptable or only some things are acceptable. And if you hold the view nothing is acceptable. We get into arguments with those who say everything is acceptable or only some things are acceptable. If you hold the view that some things are acceptable, we get into arguments with people saying that everything is acceptable or nothing is acceptable. So no matter what view you're holding, you're liable to wind up in these wrangling disputations and waste all of your time in the thicket not getting anywhere. Foreseeing for himself clashes, disputes, quarrels, and vexations, he abandons that view and does not take up some other view. This is how there comes to be the abandoning of these views. This is how there comes to be the relinquishing of these views. Now, Agavesana, this body made of material form consisting of the four great elements, produced by mother and father, built up out of rice and porridge, is subject to impermanence, to being worn and rubbed away, to dissolution and dis disintegration. It should be regarded as impermanent, as suffering, as a disease, a, term, a tumor, a dart, a calamity, an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as void, as not self. When one regards this body thus, one abandons desire for the body, affection for the body, subservience to the body. So, this body should be regarded as a tumor, a boil, a dart, now, what kind of views and opinions do you have about your body? What kind of views and opinions do you have about other people's bodies? I grew up using my body to transport my head from place to place. Um, 
Eventually, when I was about 27, having moved to California, having discovered the great outdoors, I actually started exercising, doing yoga, and entered my body. And suddenly, you know, I had this new thing that was really useful and could be enjoyed and was something more than just to take my head from place to place. And I developed a good image about my body. And then I read something like, it should be regarded as impermanent. Okay, I can buy that. As suffering, well, as dukkha, is not totally satisfying. Uh, yeah, okay, I can buy that. As a disease, well, sometimes as a tumor, a dart, a calamity, an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as void, as not self. So what sort of views and opinions are coming up right now? Okay. If you identify with your body, it's going to cause you problems. Let's face it. Right now is the best you're ever going to look. It's going to go downhill from here. Right? No, it's just not likely to get a lot better. Right? So if you're attached... It's going to cause some problems. Okay, just just remember if you have a view and opinion there, you know, and it, it involves attachment, attachment to having a forever young, totally functioning, always healthy body. Dukkha is going to arise. But having a view of your body that's negative is still having a view. And it's going to produce unpleasant results as well. The idea is to recognize the body for what it is. And nothing more than that. To simply see it. To not be infatuated. To realize that it's necessary to take care of it. Meaning, take it out and exercise it. Give it good food, etc. But don't become totally infatuated with it. It's also useful not to become totally infatuated with other bodies, right? I don't care how spectacular your significant other looks. This is the best they're going to look too, right? It's going to be downhill with them. If you're attached to them looking this good, okay, you get the picture. All right, so basically what the Buddha is saying, forget about the views. Pay attention to the body. See what's happening. There are agavesana, three kinds of feelings. Pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor pa- painful. Vedana. The translation feeling is actually quite terrible. We tend to think of feelings as emotions, and it does not mean emotions. So, first sense impression. I'm going to leave it untranslated. On the occasion when one feels pleasant vedana, one does not feel painful Vedna, nor neither painful nor pleasant Vedna. On the occasion one only feels pleasant Vedna. On the occasion when one feels painful Vedna, one doesn't feel the other two. On the occasion where one feels neutral Vedna, one doesn't feel the other two. Pleasant feeling is impermanent, conditioned, dependently arisen, subject to destruction, vanishing, fading away, and ceasing. And so too for painful feeling and neutral feeling, Vedna. Okay, so the Vedna 
is what leads to the craving, and the craving is what leads to the dukkha. All right? So the idea is to understand the Vedana, to realize that this feels nice, but don't get attached. It's impermanent. It's going to disappear. And if this feels not nice, if this is painful, that too is impermanent. Sometimes Anicca is your friend. Okay? And if it's a neutral Vedana, well, that's going to change as well. You will either get pleasant or painful ones sooner or later. But recognize these Vedana. Recognize that the input of your senses is generating pleasant reactions toward and unpleasant reactions away or neutral reactions to ignore. And this is just what's happening. Don't get hooked on it because there is nothing that is going to provide you with lasting, pleasant Vedana. There's nothing that's going to prevent unpleasant Vedana. All right? Just see them for what they are. So once again, the Buddha is saying, take a look at what's going on. See the impermanent nature. See the unsatisfactory nature of things. Seeing thus, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with pleasant Vedana, disenchanted with painful Vedana, disenchanted with neither painful nor pleasant Vedana. Being disenchanted, it becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. One understands, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming into any state of being. Now, this is slightly different from what the Buddha said to Vachagota, not so much in the thrust of what is being said, but sort of in the details. With Vachagota, the Buddha talked about all five of the aggregates. With long fingernails, he only talks about two of them. All right? Now think about long fingernails. Right? He's obviously into his body. You don't get into your body and grow your fingernails out really, I mean, you don't grow your fingernails out really long without being somewhat into your body. So now the Buddha recognizes this and talks about the body. And he's probably into sensations, initial sense impressions. Okay, so the Buddha is very skillful. He's able to read the people that he's talking to and give them what is needed. He may have recognized that long fingernails wasn't particularly into perception or into his head in terms of mental formations and so forth. And maybe he didn't have any clue about consciousness, but he did have a clue about his body and about Vedna. So the Buddha gives him just a little bit here. A bhikkhu whose mind is liberated thus sides with none and disputes with none. He employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it. Okay, now this is really key. Often we talk about relative truth and absolute truth. One who is liberated has gained the absolute truth. But they're not blinded to the truths of the world. They're able to carry on a conversation. They're able to say, I'm going on alms round. They don't say, this bowl is going on alms round or anything like that, right? They can use the conventions of the world, but they're not fooled by it. They don't conceive of a separate self. This is a key bit. One of the problems that often happens as people progress on the spiritual path, they get a taste of the absolute truth. They, they get a, a glimpse of it. 
And it's so much more profound than the truths of the world. I mean, it's like, wow. There is a tendency then to dismiss the relative's truths as not being true. But they are true, but only from a relative standpoint. Okay? Have you ever seen a rainbow? Anybody ever see a rainbow? Right? Okay. There's no such thing as a rainbow. From a deeper truth level, there's just raindrops, sunlight. Oh, an observer at the right place. It's a participatory universe, right? Okay, if you have the raindrops and the sunlight, but you don't have the observer at the right place, there's no rainbow. Okay? But you get the observer at the right place and the rainbow appears. The relative truth is there's the rainbow. It's a double rainbow. It's fantastic, right? And you're all excited. From an ultimate standpoint, it's just raindrops and sunlight and you looking at it. In fact, the person next to you, that you say, oh, look at the rainbow, and they go, wow, that's fantastic. They're actually looking at a different rainbow. They're not seeing exactly the same raindrops as you. They're not, the light that's being refracted through their eyes is coming through different raindrops. Just someone standing next to you. Right? So you're both commenting on this great rainbow and you're actually seeing different rainbows. Yet, knowing the physics involved doesn't mean that you can't see the rainbow. doesn't mean that you can't say to someone, look, a rainbow. Right? Even if you understand the deeper truth, the relative truth doesn't go away. It's just not misunderstood. And this is the key bit. Okay? So the Buddha says, one sides with none, disputes with none, one employs the speech currently in, the, in use without adhering to it. In other words, one is able to talk but not be fooled by what one says. Now on this occasion, the Venerable Sariputta was standing behind the Blessed One, fanning him. Then he thought, the Blessed One indeed speaks of the abandoning of these things through direct knowledge. The Sublime One indeed speaks of the relinquishing of these things through direct knowledge. As the Venerable Sariputta considered this, through not clinging, his mind was liberated from the taints. So all the time that the Buddha was talking to long fingernails, Sariputta was standing behind him, fanning him, listening to the discourse. And at the end of the discourse, Sariputta got enlightened. But in the Wanderer Dignaka, the spotless, immaculate eye of Dhamma arose. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. The Wanderer Dignaka saw the Dhamma, attained the Dhamma, understood the Dhamma, fathomed the Dhamma. He crossed beyond doubt, did away with perplexity, gained intrepidity, intrepidity, intrepidity and became independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. In other words he arrived at stream entry. He had a glimpse of the absolute truth so deep that it totally changed him. Now, he didn't get what Sariputta got. Right? But Sariputta had been hanging out with the Buddha for two weeks. Right? <laughs> this guy just showed up. Then he said to the Blessed One, Magnificent Master Gotama, Magnificent Master Gotama, Mag Master Gotama has made the Dharma clear in many ways, as though he were 
turning upright what had been knocked down, pointing out the way to one who was lost, bringing a lamp into a dark room. I go to Mastigotama for refuge and to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of Bhikkhus. From today, let Mastigotama remember me as a lay follower who's gone to him for refuge for life. So Long Fingernails decided that he would become a follower of the Buddha, but not become a monk, but at least a lay follower. So the Buddha isn't saying, don't have the view, all views are wrong. Because that's contradictory. Right? That's also holding a fixed view. The key thing is not holding fixed views. How many people in the room are enlightened? Uh, nobody. This means that whatever view you have right now is not an enlightened view. If you want to get enlightened, guess what? You have to give up the views you have now. You know, it's like, how are you going to go anywhere else if you don't leave where you are now? We're stuck with the views that we have. We cling to them. We pontificate about them. We write papers. We post email messages, web blogs, right? They're just views and opinions. And they have to be let go of. Right? Because, I mean, if you're following the spiritual path, you are acknowledging where I'm at is not where I want to be. Right? In order to get someplace else, you've got to leave where you are. You have to not hold the fixed views. Now, it's not that the views aren't helpful. Indeed, they are. But you need to not hold them as fixed views. They can be skillful means. All right? Skillful means of understanding the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. Skillful means of understanding dependent origination. Okay? These are skillful things. And as we'll see after lunch, these are the things that the Buddha actually was referring to when he spoke of right view. Remember, right view is the first of the Eightfold Path. And what, O monks, is right view? View of this is dukkha. Understanding this is the origin of dukkha. Understanding this is the cessation of dukkha. Understanding this is the path of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. So the Buddha is not saying don't have any views. But he's definitely saying don't cling to these views. He is saying there are views that are simply wrong. Okay. The fact that you can kill people and there are no karmic consequences, he's saying that's a wrong view. He's saying that there is a soul and it's eternally happy after death. He's saying that's a wrong view. And he's saying right view is, well, it's not a cosmological explanation of the universe but that right view is skillful means, ways of approaching what's going on 
so that you can gain some understanding in the nature of things as they are. In particular, the Four Noble Truths and in particular, Dependent Origination. So this is a survey of views and opinions that were held by various recluses and Brahmins at the time of the Buddha. Any questions or comments on this? Now, I know I've heard some of this before, and each time I come to the same place. If you don't cling to your views, is it a process of having the view, um, believing in something and wanting to work for a good cause, that you let go moment by moment? I mean, you don't. It, how do you renew the view in the next moment? Basically, I would say, particularly with working with a good cause, the idea is to do the right thing without being attached to the results. Okay? To recognize when there is dukkha. To recognize that in the face of this dukkha, here is something that I can do that may help eliminate this dukkha. And do whatever you can to help eliminate that dukkha. And if you succeed, wonderful. And if you didn't succeed and you're not attached to the results, well, you did what you could. It didn't work. So basically, <clears throat> the, the skillful thing is keeping in mind, dukkha happens, right? Keeping in mind that the alleviation of dukkha is a good thing. And using what skills that you have to attempt to alleviate that dukkha without being attached to the results. So rather than having a view that, you know, the military industrial complex is destroying the country, see that there's dukkha happening. See what's causing the dukkha, what sort of craving, clinging, grasping is causing that dukkha. See what you can do to alleviate that dukkha. And don't be attached to the results. Okay? Rather than being attached to the destruction of the military industrial complex. It might be a great thing. Okay? But it's probably, if you're going to be attached to it, probably going to lead to vexation and a thicket of arguments and everything else. But simply recognizing, oh, this is dukkha. Here's something I can do about it and doing what you can is a much healthier and in a sense, much less stressful and burnout-producing way of approaching things. So the next step about the clinging is if you are against war, then taking action to march or to, do, to work toward that end, where's the clinging to the outcome? I mean, where's the difference between clinging to the outcome and working toward an outcome. Re realizing that going on a march might, you know, point out the fact that, oh, this is an immoral war to people that hadn't thought about it quite like that before. Especially if a lot of you do it. A lot of you do it a lot of times. Okay? Being attached to the rest of the country going, oh, this is an immoral war and forcing it to stop. That's where the, the problem comes in. I remember going on the Peace March in 1991 when the first Gulf War took place. And uh, I didn't think that, 
you know, a bunch of us marching through San Francisco was going to make George Bush the first stop the war. You know, I just wasn't that naive. But it seemed like the right thing to do. Okay? It just, even though I was pretty certain it wasn't going to have that strong an effect on George Bush the first, it still seemed like the right thing to do. So I went and did it. And when it didn't change his mind, the amount of dukkha I experienced was directly proportional to the amount of attachment I had to it having changed his mind. Right? So, the key thing is do the right thing. Don't be attached to the results. It, it helps prevent the burnout. It helps prevent the dukkha that can arise. Another question in front there. 